I uh, was thinking about it this week that I should uh, entitle this sermon, uh, Let's Try That Again. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, I am thankful for Brother Steve and message from Psalm 139 last week, and uh, it was a blessing. And um, But today we're, we are going to try it again, and so we're going to do that by taking a look at uh, the rest of, well, the second part of chapter 11 of uh, Revelation, chapter 11, uh, after last week looking at verses 1 and 2. Recall the first two verses, we slowed down there and we looked at the divine measurement of God's love. Um, and we saw that as we took a look there at the temple that John mentions there and the temple that God called him to measure. And we looked at the fact that that temple was uh, symbolically the people of God. It wasn't an actual temple, but he was referring to we, God's people. That God measures out every single one of us, every single one of his elect people, and we are his temple. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And, and in that temple, we looked at the fact that, uh, uh, as John points out in verses 1 and 2, that he excludes a part of it, specifically the outer court. That outer part of the tabernacle, if you study that out in the Old Testament, it was the place where the sacrifices were made. It was the place, that bloody place, where, where atonement was made for sins. But through the finished work of Jesus Christ, there was no longer a need for that in the life of, of the believer. That, that, that Christ's work is finished. That he made that once-for-all sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, and therefore we stand before him forgiven, and there's no need for any other sacrifice to be made. Amen? And that's God's immeasurable love for us. God's immeasurable love is, is not contingent upon our, our uh, willingness. It's not our religiosity, whatever that might be. It's based completely and utterly upon God's grace and how he chose to show that to us. And, and contextually, the reason why I camped out there, contextually, uh, that truth would have been a really big, huge source of encouragement uh, for those Christians there, as we looked at, who were struggling as a result of the tribulation events that had been going on uh, in this future part of history. As we looked at these tribulation saints, they would have had to endure, if you take a look at verses 1 and 2, they would have had to endure a trampling, and that trampling is a reference to severe persecution, and that persecution would last for an extended period of time. It says 42 months. We saw that in verse 2. But amidst uh, that period of trampling, we see here in verses 3 to 14 that God is not done. He's not done with this judgment. He's not done judging the world. And this time, he's going to do so in a more formal way, a more upfront way, uh, namely with uh, the appearance of these, as we read in this text, these two mysterious witnesses. And these witnesses appear according to verse 3. They appear prophesying and giving a testimony, giving a testimony of the gospel to the world. And, of course, these two witnesses tend to be kind of like I've, I've said this the last time when I actually uh, made it about a third of the way through the sermon, but uh, two witnesses, they kind of tend to steal the show of the passage. Uh, they tend to be the focal point of chapter 11. But I think that that's the reason why we need to kind of slow down. A lot, oftentimes we can be guilty of just reading the scripture and just kind of glossing over certain parts of it. It's very, very helpful for you to slow down. Slow down and read the scripture slowly. And that's the reason why I, I spent that time in those first two verses. But I would argue that the two witnesses, uh, that they're the focal point of this text for a good reason, okay? And we need to remember that during this period of future history, and we've already established it as we've gone through Revelation, but this is going to be a really, really bad time. 
It's going to be a very, very bleak time for the world, and it's going to be a really even bleaker time, I would argue, for Christians uh, at this time, to say the least. You have, as we've already seen through all of the the trumpet judgments and all of these kind of things, the, the destruction of a really large portion of the world, and then you couple that with this trampling, you couple that with this severe persecution, and really, I mean, it's, it's going to be a tough time to be a Christian. It's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be one of those times that it's going to make even the strongest of Christians really want to quit, want to throw in the towel. And, and that's the reason why I think that that reminder of God's love for us and God's love for them in this particular case is so very important. Uh, it would have been so very important to these believers who were living during this, this very, very dark time. These tribulation-era Christians, uh, they, they needed to remind, be reminded, as we all do, that despite our circumstances, despite what may be going on, despite good or bad, whatever that might be, of that simple truth, that God loves us. Amen? God loves us. And by the way, he loves us so much that he actually has a plan for us, that he actually has things in control. Everything is in his hand. And that sovereign plan for the future is, again, is what's going to encourage it, what's encourage us, but it would encourage these, these future saints to keep pressing on. And that's really where the two witnesses come in to this text, that not, not only does God give them this, this, these, these future persecuted tribulation saints, gives them this reminder about his sovereign love for them, but he also sends them these two people, these two mysterious witnesses, these two men as, as a form of encouragement, I would argue as a form of, of inspiration for them during this really dark period of history. And so these two witnesses, they serve as, as an example for these believers in the future and an inspiration for those believers in the future, but we are privileged to be able to have this revelation today. And so they are also an encouragement and hopefully, Lord willing, an inspiration for us today that we would be like these witnesses, that we would learn from their example of witnessing, that we would be bold in our confession of the faith, that we would be bold in our defense of the faith, as we're going to see, these, these witnesses are going to have to face overwhelming odds. I mean, the whole world is going to be against them. And so that we would look upon them and that despite our own overwhelming odds, that we would continue to just entrust ourselves to, to God's sovereign hand. That despite what may happen to us, that we remind ourselves that we're saved. That we remind ourselves that we are loved by God. That we remind ourselves that we have eternal life. And not only will we attain eternal life, but also, as we're going to see from this text today, that God is also going to, going to bless us by actually granting eternal life to those who we witness to, just like he did for these two witnesses here in this text, that, that God is and he always will be until the day that Jesus Christ steps foot on this planet once again, that God is always, always, always in the business of saving souls, that salvation is always open and that we need to just continue to witness to that glorious gospel truth. And so today uh, we're going to look at uh, the conclusion. If you put this in the context, the conclusion of the events of the sixth trumpet with what I'm calling uh, today uh, the encouragement, the encouragement of the two witnesses. And that's the real title of our sermon today. Uh, it should be, let's try that again. But, uh, but yeah, it's the encouragement of the two witnesses. And so I, I pray that as we delve into who these two mysterious figures are, these tribulation-era future figures are, as well as what their purpose for coming is. I, I, I just pray that you'd be just a, a little bit more encouraged today, that you'd be a little bit more inspired by their example of faith, that we would get out there and share the gospel in this bold way that they did in the future, that we would do that here and now. And so to understand that better, we're first going to take a look at how John describes these two witnesses, which leads to point number one, if you're taking notes today, a description of the two witnesses, a description of the two witnesses. And so looking at verse three, we first see that God is going to grant, you'll notice, authority 
to, he uses that possessive pronoun. I know I mentioned this last time, but he, he uses that possessive pronoun, my. He's going to give authority to my two witnesses. Meaning this is that right from the get-go, right at the first description of, of these witnesses, we, there is no doubt that these witnesses are from God. That there's no doubt that, that these two mysterious figures that just appear out of nowhere, that they are, they are God's men. And there's a lot of confusing things in Revelation. There's a lot of things that we're not going to understand. And I think even from this text today, we're not going to understand everything. Uh, but we do understand one thing about these two witnesses, that they're God's witnesses. Okay? That that's what they are. And because they are God's witnesses, their testimony, their message, if you will, possesses authority. That's where their authority comes from. It comes from God because they are God's messengers. They are God's witnesses. And so their authority, just like any other witness, just like you and I, because we are called to be witnesses as well, their authority, just like any witness of God, is founded in God's authority, in the authority of God's word, in the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to remember that when it comes to evangelism, that there is no authority in our own words. There is no authority in our own personal stories, uh, I would argue even as powerful as our personal testimonies can be of God's grace in our lives, that, that there's no authority in that. But there is everlasting authority where? In the gospel, in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the word of God, which is what I would argue what these two witnesses were sent to communicate. Two witnesses, they were sent to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like every other Christian, every other witness that has ever lived. That's what they were, that's what they were called to do. But Moving on, it then says in verse 3 that they were clothed in sackcloth, kind of dealing with that issue of authority here, that they were clothed in sackcloth. And again, as you read through the Bible, especially throughout the Old Testament, you know that when people put on sackcloth, it was a sign of, usually a sign of mourning. It was usually a sign of uh, when somebody was, was uh, weeping over something or had some kind of grief. It was a sign of humility. Probably the most famous example of that would be Job. Of course, when all of those terrible things happened to Job, he put on sackcloth, he sat in ashes, and, and, he, and he wept. It was a sign of humility. And, of course, sackcloth is just that. It's a, it's a sack. It's a repurposed sack from, you know, vegetables or potatoes or whatever. And so it's not like, you know, you're putting on your Sunday best. It's a sign. So putting this on, putting this kind of cloth on your back is a sign of submission. It's a sign of humility. And that's why the two witnesses were wearing sackcloth, is because they were submissive to who? They were submissive to God. Even by what they were wearing, it just screamed. The authority is not in us, it's in God. So that's why they were wearing sackcloth. But moving on, it then says in verse 4 that God describes them as two olive trees. Two olive trees and two lampstands. And again, I know I've been kind of harping on this throughout our study through the book of Revelation, and I'm going to continue to harp on it, but you need to understand your Old Testament. You need to be in the Old Testament. I know, uh, you know, we mentioned Leviticus this morning, and I know that we spent a lot of time there going through it, but it's so, so very important that you are at least are familiar as a Christian with your Old Testament, because I, I'm going to argue, especially with the book of Revelation, but I would argue through the great majority of the New Testament, you're not really going to be able to fully grasp everything, or at least grasp it to its depths, the New Testament, without understanding, or at least having kind of a periphery understanding of the Old Testament. In this particular case, this reference to two olive trees and two lampstands, uh, you can find that if you turn to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 4. You can turn there in your Bibles if you want, but it'll be on the screen. But Zechariah chapter 4, we see here, uh, we see here that uh, 
this Old Testament prophecy that was mentioned here through that prophet, said this, picking up in verse 11 of Zechariah chapter 4, then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones. You should circle that in your Bible. Two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And so I'm not going to give a full exposition of this text here today, but in the immediate context of Zechariah, the, the olive trees, these two lampstands, they're obviously people, they're two anointed ones, as, the, as he calls them here. And they were essentially called at this particular time, this dark time of Israel's history, to basically call upon the nation to repent, call upon them to get their lives right, to, to seek the redemption that can only be found in God at that time. It was, it was written during the exile. It was written during a very, very hard time for Israel. And, uh, and, and so God sends these two anointed ones, these two figures, to be able to basically say, hey, get your act together. Preach, preach this message from God. But again, as you study these things out, you find, and this is the reference here in Revelation, that as is the case with most Old Testament prophecies, that there's usually dual meanings. There's usually dual fulfillments that we see fulfilled in the New Testament. It's the reason why it's so important to know the Old Testament. And so while the two anointed ones in Zechariah they, they did fulfill their ministry. They most certainly fulfilled their ministry in that context. Clearly, these two witnesses that we see here appear in Revelation, they, they're also a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. But I would argue to an even greater extent, to their true extent, two anointed ones. We, we, read, we read about this when we went through the book of Hebrews. We talk about how many of the things that we read about in the Old Testament are, are shadows, uh, shadows of, of things to, to come. And that's what I would argue that these two anointed ones are, and that's what these two witnesses are. Um, it's a greater fulfillment of that Old Testament text with God not sending them to just preach to just one nation, not just sending them to preach to just Israel during a very hard time, but he brings these two witnesses to preach to who? Really to the entire world at this time, during what I would argue is one of the darkest periods, if not the darkest period in world history. And specifically in this case, the, the darkest time I believe that any group of believers uh, is ever going to have to endure. Uh, that during this tribulation time period. And so we see that greater fulfillment of Zechariah here in Revelation chapter 11. But moving on to verse 5, it then says that, it says, and if anyone would harm them, speaking of the two witnesses, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. And again, this is where you need to understand just a little bit of your Old Testament. It's so very important because these are all callbacks. They're all references to what already happened throughout Old Testament history. And again, uh, we see this is uh, that, that these two witnesses, that they have the ability to basically call down fire, to control fire, to be able to consume their foes. And that's a very, very similar event to what already happened with the prophet Elijah. Elijah, specifically in 2 Kings chapter 1. And again, I won't have you turn there, but you can look that up on your own time. But if you go into that context, you find that in, in that point in history, you had a very evil king by the name of Ahaziah uh, of Israel, who, uh, who had, as a result of those things, he got really, really sick. He got really, really ill. And so rather than going to the Lord... Rather than going to God and begging for forgiveness, or, and, or excuse me, begging for healing at that time, and yeah, forgiveness too. He should have been begging for forgiveness, some of the things that Ahaziah did. But going to God and saying, Lord, heal me. Instead, he went to the false gods. 
he went to specifically the god known as Beelzebub. And you've probably heard that terminology before, you know, Beelzebub, which is usually a reference to Satan. Usually a lot of times people equate him, whether he was a demon or not, we don't know, but it was clearly demonic in nature. So Ahaziah goes to Beelzebub, the prophets of Beelzebub, the messengers of Beelzebub, for healing. But the prophet Elijah, if you read that text, he ends up meeting these uh, prophets of Baal, Beelzebub, along the way, and, and basically preached the message of the Lord to them. He basically said that Ahaziah, because of what he did, is going to die. He's going to die because he, rather than going to the Lord, he went to this false god. And obviously this aggravates the king, uh, who then sends a group of soldiers, if you read that text, to go and confront and capture and basically arrest Elijah. But Elijah responds by stating that fire, fire would come down from heaven and consume this captain, and he had 50 men with him, but consume all of those men if they tried to harm them which they do. It actually happens. Second Kings, just to read one verse, Second Kings chapter 1, verse 10, it says, But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. And if you keep reading, that actually happens a total of three times. Ahaziah sends a total of three groups of 50 after Elijah, and every single time those groups get consumed. And the story eventually ends with Ahaziah dying exactly the way that Elijah said. And so I bring that back to the New Testament, bring that back to these two witnesses, because these two witnesses obviously are cut from the same cloth as Elijah, right? We can see that. You can see the connection. They clearly had the same authority as the prophet Elijah. But moving on to verse 6, it continues by stating that these witnesses, it says that they have the power also to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And again, this is where you need to know your Old Testament once again, because this is another reference to, once again, Elijah. It's a clear reference to the prophet Elijah, who, if you back up into 1 Kings, you can write this down, you can look up these references on your own, but in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, he had that same kind of authority, that same kind of power to be able to shut up the sky. You had actually Ahaziah's father, King Ahab, one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history. Uh, Elijah was called to preach against him. And as a result of the nation's idolatry and, and all of their Baal worship and all of those things, Elijah basically said, look, according to God's word, there's going to be no rain for you. And that was a big problem for a very agrarian culture. I mean, they needed the rain. They were dependent upon it. And so he said that there's going to be no rain in Israel for several years until Elijah prays again and that the rains come. And so exactly like Elijah said, a drought came, famine came upon the land of Israel, and it lasted for a total of three years. It devastated them. Devastated them until the people finally turned to God, until the people finally repented, and so Elijah prayed to the Lord, and rains came. And so bringing it back to Revelation once again, obviously this is a reference to Elijah. Obviously we see that, that these two witnesses have that same kind of authority that the Old Testament prophets had. But continuing on in the text, you then have a much more well-known Old Testament reference here, and we've already kind of seen this through the book of Revelation, a reference to Moses and the Egyptian plagues, uh, once again turning the waters into blood. Pick up in verse 6. It says, And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And so, very clearly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but again, the two witnesses here in Revelation very clearly, I hope you see this, very clearly cut from the same cloth as these Old Testament men of God. They had the same authority that these men possessed in the Old Testament, so clearly these men were from God. 
And so bearing in mind all of that context, all of that Old Testament history, all of that, based upon these descriptions, the natural question that we should have as we go to the text is, who are they? Who are these two witnesses exactly? And that's up for a lot of debate. And if you want to have fun, buy yourself two or three uh, commentaries on Revelation, because all three of them will have a different viewpoint on this. Um, it's, it's been a fun study. It really has. But uh, some teach uh, that, uh, that these two witnesses are actually the, the resurrected uh, Elijah and Moses. Because, again, you know, we see, obviously, references to both Moses and Elijah here. Okay? And we've also seen, and they kind of make that argument, because, you know, obviously we've seen New Testament appearances of both Moses and Elijah. Where? We've seen it at the Transfiguration, right? Jesus appeared, he appeared in his transfigured form, and Moses and Elijah appeared on his right hand and on his left. I don't think that that's the case, because John, of course, is the one that's writing Revelation, and John was present at the Transfiguration. So you think that if this is Moses and Elijah, that John probably would have included that detail. So I don't necessarily think the two witnesses are... Moses and Elijah. But some argue that the witnesses are also uh, Elijah, once again, because of the, the references there, but also Enoch. And you remember uh, that Enoch was, he didn't die, but he was taken up, is what the text of Scripture says. And by the way, so was Elijah. Elijah was taken up in that chariot. And so uh, basically, it's the only two humans that we know of in the Bible that didn't die, but, were at, but they were taken up into heaven. And so the argument here is, is that, uh, that God is basically bringing them back down from heaven, to physically die and uh, to, to be risen again, as we're going to look at in just a second. But that said, I, I'm just going to say this, <laughs> and I hope that you don't think that this is kind of a cop-out answer, but the truth is, it's like a great many things, especially in the book of Revelation, folks, we just don't know, okay? We just don't know who these two witnesses are. You can't put your finger down exactly who they are. The Bible doesn't identify them. Could have, could have given us the names of who they are, could have, but, he, but God chose not to. You know, it just gives us these really Old Testament saturated descriptions. And that's all that he gives us, which tells us one thing. And I think it's the most important thing, is that these witnesses are from who? They're God's witnesses. That's all we need to know. doesn't matter their name. doesn't matter who they are. We know that they're God's witnesses. We see the prophecy from Zechariah. We see that they say it had the same abilities as Moses and Elijah. And that tells us as we read the text of Scripture. And by the way, it's going to tell the world in the future at that time that these are servants of the one true God. And you better not mess with them. This is who they are. And so while we might not have their identity, they're from God. And that's a really important thing. But that leads us to ask another question. Why? Why were they sent? What was their purpose? What was their ministry of these two witnesses? Well, that leads us to point number two, the ministry of the two witnesses. Take a look at verse seven once again. It says, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And so this is the first time in the book of Revelation that we see the beast mentioned. Uh, and the identity of the beast is just as debated as the two witnesses, okay? And we're going to talk about the beast more later on when he's mentioned later on in the, in the book of Revelation. But some think that the beast is literally the devil, which I don't think that that's true. Uh, and some others believe rightly, and I, th I think 
rightly, personally, in my personal opinion, that the beast is more of a, it's, it's a personified, it's, a, it's more of a symbol of, of evil during this period of future history. Yeah, I mean, we see that the beast comes from the bottomless pit. We've talked about where it comes from that word abusos, which is where we, it's a reference to hell. Obviously, this beast is something, you know, demonically related, but there's clearly symbolism. There's clearly a symbolic aspect here in the text that we need to bear in mind as we approach it, if we're going to interpret it properly. And, and how do I know? How do I know that we need to interpret the beast symbolically? Well, because it says it in the text, okay? Verse 8, it says that after the beast kills the witnesses, we'll talk about this verse a little bit more, but it says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, notice that word, symbolically, is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And so, clearly, in this text, and we have to bear this in mind, there is clearly an element of symbolism in this particular passage that we need to apply to our interpretation, if you're going to understand it correctly. Meaning this is that the beast and this great city, Sodom and Egypt, I don't think that they're supposed to be taken literally. I don't think that this is a literal beast, like a monster, like we'd think of what a beast is. But rather that John is using symbolism. He's using metaphoric kind of language. Meaning, again, that this is, again, not a, not a creature of some kind, but I would argue that this is most likely, and this is just the opinion of Tim Howard, this is, I would argue that it, this is most likely just some kind of God-hating world leader at the time. I think that that's why you have the association with the governments at that time, with the cities, Sodom and Egypt. Most likely a, a, somebody who is demon-possessed. We see demons floating around in previous chapters. Uh, most likely demon-possessed and obviously originating from hell, the bottomless pit. And these two countries, Sodom and Egypt, they obviously are symbolic. They represent the kind of government, this evil kind of government that they are going to run at this particular time. Satan-based government at that time. And, and again, contextually, I'd argue that that makes sense because as we have already seen, and we've seen this in chapter 9, the world as a whole at this point in future history has all but rejected God. They've all but rejected God. They are now literally, if you go back to chapter 9, verses 20 to 21, they are now literally bowing down to demons. They are worshiping demons at this point in world history. And so it would make sense at this point, as we get to chapter 11, it would make sense that this demonic or at least demon-possessed, this God-hating future leader, this beast, um, that he would rise to power. And that being that he's in power, that he wouldn't take too kindly to these two witnesses. These two witnesses who at this point are not just testifying about the gospel, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching the truths of God, but also they're, they're creating a lot of havoc on the world at this time, right? They're using these God-given powers, creating droughts and, and fire from heaven and, and waters turning into blood and all that stuff. And so they're probably really, really agitated at that point. They're causing a lot of trouble. And so based upon the trouble that the two witnesses were causing for this beast... The beast then, in his mind anyway, or whatever it is, would be completely justified, as he does in verse 7, by making war on them. Notice he makes war on them and conquers them and kills them. And he does do that. The beast kills the two witnesses at this point, And he then leaves their dead bodies to, according to verse 8, lie in the street while the world gazes upon them for three and a half days. Take a look once again at verse 9. It says, For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Meaning this is that the beast wanted this to be a show. He, <laughs> the beast and his followers, they wanted to make this triumphant show of the death of these two Christian witnesses in the face of the one true God. 
He wanted, he, the beast wanted everybody to know that he defeated God. He defeated God's ministers, these powerful beings, calling fire down from heaven and plagues on the world. I defeated them. That he is the sovereign, that the beast is the sovereign over all of the world. That's what he wanted to accomplish here. And it accomplished it. This parading of their dead bodies in the streets, it was, it was taken exactly the way that the beast wanted to with celebration. Notice verse 10. Notice the reaction of the followers of the beast in verse 10. It says, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, the dead bodies. Make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment. That's an important word. Had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And so essentially what happened here is that the death of the two witnesses, it became a holiday for the world at the time. For this beast-run world at the time, it became a holiday. The message of God that these two witnesses were sent to communicate, it was considered, as I pointed out there, torment to the world. And so the idea of it being stopped, stopping this message was of utmost importance to the world at the time. Those who dwell on the earth at the time, as it says, they just couldn't stand to listen to the gospel. They couldn't stand to listen to this message about Jesus Christ to the point where they didn't just indifferently ignore it. I think that that's what we struggle with today. Most people just kind of ignore the gospel today if you go out and witness. But in this particular case, these people are going to actively seek to destroy that message. Actively seek to destroy not just the message, but those who proclaim it. These two prominent men who are, who are proclaiming the gospel. And so, and so while, yes, that would include the two witnesses, those who, who, were, who died in the street here, you also have to remember contextually, going back to verses 1 and 2, that that would also include those believers who adhered to the two witnesses. Those, those believers who were being, notice verse 1 and 2, trampled for the gospel. Those believers who were being persecuted. And so the death of the witnesses, that was, this would have been the, the, the pinnacle of, God's, uh, of, of the persecution of God's future people. And again, this just shows how spiritually pitch black the world is going to get at this point. That not only are these people worshiping demons, not only have they uh, uplifted this beast, this demon-possessed beast leader to be their, their guide through the world, but they're also, at this point, just how terrible this is, that they are actually celebrating the unceremonious death of these Christian leaders with their dead bodies lying rotting in the streets for three and a half days for the world to see. It's how dark it is. And so bringing us back to our second point, what exactly is going to be the ministry of the two witnesses? What exactly were they called to do while they were here on earth? What is their purpose? Well, I would argue that the ministry of the two witnesses is the same as every Christian who's ever lived. The same as every single Christian witness that has ever walked this planet, or in this particular case, or whoever will walk this planet. It's the same purpose. Their ministry, the ministry of the two witnesses, was to glorify God by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and then die and be with him. That's our purpose, amen? It's to glorify Jesus Christ. Their ministry was, was to live their very, very short time here on this planet with one purpose, the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter, no matter what, no matter if they were accepted or rejected, no matter if they were loved or hated by the world, no matter if they lived or in this particular case they, they died, but not just died, but died this, this shameful mock death in the streets for all to see. These two witnesses, their ministry, their purpose is the very, very same as your ministry and my ministry today if you are a Christian and that is to glorify our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That is our purpose. That is what we, that's what we are called to do and folks, I think that we need that reminder and we need it often. 
We need to hear this message. We need to remember our purpose, and we need to remember it often. Our purpose as Christians, while we are here on earth, is not to be well-liked. It's not to be comfortable. It's not to live our best life now or, or to be loved by the world. That is not our purpose as Christians, not at all. Our purpose is to live every single moment that he gives us, to use every single beat of our heart that he, that he grants to us for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is our purpose, no matter what the cost. Knowing this, knowing ultimately that this is not all that there is. This world is not all that there is, knowing that we have a reward coming, that we will be with Jesus, and as Paul said, it will be far better, better than we can ask or think. Amen? That is, that is the hope that we have. We have eternal life awaiting for us. The world's going to tell you this. The world's going to tell you, listen, you only live once. How many of you have heard that before? Whatever it is, YOLO. I don't know if that's a thing the kids say anymore, but uh, you only live once, and so you better do whatever you got to do here and now. Get the greatest amount of pleasure that you can right here and right now, but the Christian knows better. We know better, don't we? We know that there is so much more waiting for us beyond the grave. We know that we have eternal life. We know that, we know that Christ is our reward, that we're going to be with him, and that, and that nothing the world offers can compare to Jesus. That we would do as we sung before, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus and keep them fixated there for all eternity. That's what we need. And because we have eternity waiting for us, we can gladly put this life into perspective. Every single struggle, every single thing that I'm going for is put into perspective with the fact that I have eternal life awaiting for me. Amen? Everything is put into perspective with the gospel. That the very short time that I have to live here on earth... Is, is, is minuscule in comparison to what God has for me in the future for his glory. And that's, this is the reason why these two witnesses, I would argue, were able to lay down their lives and suffer this mocking scorn. It's the reason why you read the Book of the Martyrs and you're able to read about men. I was, I was talking in our, our uh, Wednesday night class a few weeks ago about, about the, the preciousness of the Bible, and I was, and I was, and I was reminded of men like Tyndale. Uh, you, you know the story of Tyndale where, where just to get the Bible into the English language, the man was burned at the stake and, and he gladly suffered that loss for the glory of Jesus Christ. And the reason, for, the reason why men like Tyndale, the reason why these two witnesses were able to do that is because they understood this one truth, that this life is just a drop in the bucket and compared to the ocean of eternal life that Christ has for us. Amen? That's what we have awaiting for us. And yeah, the world is going to see that as a waste of your life here. The world's going to tell you that living for Christ, by, that you coming to church here on Sunday, that you serving Jesus Christ is a giant waste of life. I remember one time I was, I was at a get-together, and I had this, this old fella. He, I told him it was while I was still in Bible college. He come up to me, and we were talking for a few minutes. He says, what are you studying? And he says, well, I said, I'm studying theology and the Bible. I want to be a pastor. And he said right out, he says, kid, you're wasting your life. And uh, I'll never forget that kind of stuck at me. It's like, all right, that's kind of a mean thing for him to say. But that's how the world sees it, okay? They're going to see your life and, and what you do as a Christian as a waste. The world's not going to understand why you prioritize God, why you live the way that you do. And by the way, they might even hate you because of the way that you live. They might even hate you, just like they did for the two witnesses. Gospel message that you share with the world around you might even, be, might even seem like, the, the, John uses the term, torment to them. Torment when you share it to them. And they might treat you accordingly. But despite what the world thinks of us, or even what the world does to us, Christian, we keep pressing on. Amen? 
We keep pressing on knowing that our vindication for every single struggle, every single tribulation that we have to go through on this side of, of eternal life is the eternal life that, that, that he has awaiting for us. That, that the promises of Jesus Christ are true. That we, will, that we will be vindicated just like the two witnesses. Which brings us to point number three, our final point today. The vindication of the two witnesses. Taking a look at verse 11. It says this. It says, but after the three and a half days... A breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Amen? <laughs> these, these two dead witnesses, they had the last laugh here. Their, their, their ministry was vindicated as the power of God was seen through them. As, as the breath of life from God entered these three-and-a-half-day-old dead bodies laying out in the street, it causes them to rise from that shameful grave, showing everybody in that future world to see that everlasting life is found in no other place but Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what it is. It's through the witnesses. We, we, we catch this glimpse of just how powerful our God is, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the what? The life, amen, the everlasting life that Christ, he defeated death. We're going to talk about this in a couple weeks, right? We're going to talk about the Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We're going to glory in the resurrection of Jesus. That, but, that, but that Christ has defeated death. And that through that same resurrected power, that, that our dead bodies, just like these two witnesses, are going to rise again. And that, and that victory over death, that is our reward, Christian. That is your reward. That is, that is what Christ promised you. That, that is the vindication of every single struggle that you face for the name of Christ. Every single hardship, every single lost friendship, everything that you struggle and suffer for for the name of Jesus Christ, every tribulation that you go through, that, that eternal life is, is <laughs> it's your reward. It's what Christ has. And, and as I said before, it puts everything, it puts everything into perspective. And that should be our motivation every single day to live our lives for the glory of our risen Savior. Amen? Amen. But getting back to Revelation, um, as we see, the, the resurrection of the two witnesses, it, it understandably causes, as anybody coming back from the dead would, it causes tremendous fear to fall upon the world. Take a look at verse 11 the second part of verse 11. It says that after the witnesses rise from the dead, it says great fear fell upon those who saw them. And that fear is going to be further exacerbated as not only do the witnesses rise from the dead, but also they ascend. They get caught up into heaven by the voice of God. Read verses 12 and 13. It says, then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And so here we see the vindication of the, two, of the ministry of the two witnesses. They were rejected by the world. They were rejected by the beast and all of his followers to the point where they were killed, and that their dead bodies were shamefully paraded in the streets for three and a half days for all to see. However, now their enemies are quaking in fear as that power, as God's power is displayed in, not just in their resurrection and their ascension, but also as we read, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, another eschatological judgment with the falling and this earthquake and these people dying as a result, the city falling. And so we see this, this vindication of this. But I, one thing I want us to notice in this text is, you know, again, we, we, we see the vindication of, of, the, of the witnesses and their ministry, and we see how cold and, and spiritually stubborn the world is at, at this particular point. But I want to make this argument that from this text is that that didn't mean just because the world was cold and dark and everything and spiritually just inept, 
didn't mean that God was done. Didn't mean that God was done saving people, that, that the offer of salvation didn't mean that it wasn't open. As we're going to see in this text, our God is still, even at this point in future history, will still be in the business of saving souls, even at this dark, dark point in human history. Take a look at the second part of verse 13. Notice, it says, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Amen? <laughs> and so we see that, that God utilized this fear, these terrifying events associated with these two witnesses to, to bring some, to bring some of these beast-worshipping, these demon-worshipping people to Jesus Christ, even amidst this dark, I, I would argue, the darkest time in world history. And that shows that even amidst the greatest of God's judgments, even in the midst of the greatest of tribulations upon the world, that our God is still merciful. Amen? That God is still merciful. He is still gracious to save each and every person who would come to him in saving faith, each and every single person who would give glory to the God of heaven through his son. And, and I think, I think as, as we put this all in its context, I think that this conversion of some of these beast-worshipping, demon-worshippers, I think that, that that right there would have been the biggest source of inspiration for these believers. Remember up in verses 1 and 2 who were being persecuted, who were being trampled during this time of tribulation. I mean, super duper discouraging seeing all of this happen. And of course, sending the two witnesses, that would have been a source of encouragement for them, of course. Believers, it would have been a, a rallying point, I would argue, at that point for Christians in the world at the time. Uh, two men would have gained worldwide attention. We see that the world knows about them and would have known about them for preaching the gospel but also because of the miracles that they were performing, the calling fire from heaven and turning rivers into blood and all of this stuff. And, and, uh, and that, would have, that would have gained a lot of uh, traction, of course, in the world. And they would have been an even greater rallying point during these, for these tribulation believers when uh, even after they are killed, they experience God's, God's signature stamp of approval on their ministry when they rise from the dead. I don't think that it gets any more clear that these men are from God from the fact that they rose from the dead. Can we all agree on that? I mean, that... <laughs> That, that means that they're from God. And not only that, but they, got, they, they, they were taken up into heaven as well. So, I mean, that's, that's clear that they're from God. But as amazing as those things are, these miracles, I think that these trampled believers at that particular time in world history would be most encouraged by seeing the power of the gospel displayed to these lost souls, these beast-worshipping lost souls who amazingly do what? Give glory to the God of heaven. And folks, that's so amazing because... I don't know about you, but when I think about the tribulation period, I don't really think about that as a time of where people are giving glory to God. Am I wrong in that? Usually you think about the tribulation period, and I mean, we've gone through some pretty dark texts here. Um, it's not the time that I think of people giving glory to God or people coming to Jesus Christ, and yet here it is, people coming to Christ amidst the tribulation. And so even during the, as I said before, the darkest time of world history, God will still be in the business of saving the souls of men. And that truth would have been the greatest source of inspiration and encouragement to these believers. It will be to these believers who are living on earth during that tribulation period. And, and I hope that the same is true for us today. Because folks, we might not be living during the tribulation, uh, but we are living in dark times. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, we're living in uh, times where it doesn't seem like there's much revival. It doesn't seem like many people are coming to Christ. Uh, it's, it's, it's a dark, it almost seems like there's a lot of just animus towards being a Christian today. But I got news for you. I got news for you that God, even today, even in our dark times, our God is still in the business of saving souls. Amen? 
God is still in the business of changing hearts and lives. God is today utilizing witnesses. Maybe not the two witnesses in Revelation, but he's using these witnesses here. Amen? Us as witnesses. We are witnesses. He's using you and me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to a dying world. And just like those future witnesses, folks, if we are faithful in sharing the message, if we are faithful in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, many in our day, in this dark day that we are living, even in New England, even in Connecticut, even in Eastford, will come to Christ and give glory to God as they repent of their sins and put their faith alone in Jesus Christ. God can still save even the most wretched of sinners Amen? Amen. He can. And so I pray today, I pray today that as we study these two witnesses of Revelation, as you take a look at this and you see this, that you would be encouraged, just like those future believers are going to be encouraged by them, that we would be encouraged by their boldness, that we would be encouraged by God's power displayed through them to the point where we don't keep this message to ourselves, to the point where we too become witnesses, where we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this week, you want an application? Here's the application. Get out there and share the gospel. Amen? Get out there and share the gospel. No matter what it might cost you, no matter what it might be, understanding this, first and foremost, as we looked at, that eternal life is worth it. That no matter what is taken from us, we always have Christ, if you are in him today. But also, knowing this, is that through our gospel witness, that God can, and I would argue, will continue to save souls. We get out there this week, like those two witnesses, and share with boldness, that amazing message that whosoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? Let's get out there and share the gospel. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Let's go to him. Father in heaven, God, I pray that you would raise us up as witnesses this week. Lord, as you raised up these men, or as you will raise up these men in the future, oh God, that you would raise us up today. God, that the world would see your power through us, through our witness. Lord, that men and women who are lost today would see how sweet it is to trust in Jesus, as we are going to sing in just a moment. God, that they would hear that message, and God, that you would do that work of salvation in their hearts and lives. God, that you would save souls as only you can. Lord, we pray. And so, Lord, use us this week. Lord, help us, Lord, to just, just share the message. God, we don't need to be skilled in our speech. God, we don't need to be skilled as, Lord, we have your power. Lord, just the same power that these men in the future will have. God, we have the message of salvation right on our lips. Lord, give us, give us the courage to be able to share it. And so, Lord, may many come to know you as Savior as a result. We love you and praise you, and we give you the glory and trust you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.